Amen. 2 Corinthians 8 is where we'll be today, and uh, we'll be working through uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 10. There's a couple things I want to point out right off the bat that are very unique about this series. Uh, What you would see typically if you come to integrity regularly, you will realize that one of the things that's kind of a staple that we do is we typically work through books of the Bible. Uh, We did Luke, and then we just did a short little series in the book of Ruth. We went through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's what we kind of are known as doing, and that's kind of our identity, and we're going to keep doing that. Uh, And so this is why it's a unique thing, because we're not necessarily doing that right now. Uh, Sometimes during the year, we might take a short little break and and hit something that we think is really important, that will be really rich for our people. And so that's what we're doing uh, right now in this series. And so it's very practical, and it's very theological as well. We want to be challenging in both. But one thing I will do is I'll stay in the same passage. All right, I'll work verse by verse in 2 Corinthians 8. And so you're going to get a lot of uh, scripture being taught to you throughout the series. So don't worry about that. But the other thing is, uh, that's one thing. So that's the first thing is, is that we typically don't do topical series. But the second thing I do want to tell you is why this is unique is because it is about generosity and giving. And historically, as a church, uh, we have not talked about this very much. And this is why we're doing a four-week deal on it, is because typically when we talk about it, it, it shows up in a passage, and we end up explaining that passage as we work through the book, but we have not talked about it. And I think there's a couple of reasons why. I think because there's a, a bad stigma uh, that the church will often promote when, when we talk about giving. Most of the time when we hear giving, and it's from a self-proclaimed Christian, it comes off as from a a guy who's wearing a $4,000 suit and he's got gold cufflinks and there's a big throne on stage and his wife has hair that looks like cotton candy and he's up there crying out for the nations that you would give and he drives off in his Rolls Royce and that, that's kind of what the stigma is. That it's all about we're just trying to get your money. And so that's why I've tried to avoid it because I didn't want to ever sound like that type of guy or I didn't want to have the, the typical, uh, you know, Baptist church mindset, you know, our church is part of the Southern Baptist Commission. We love what they do, but what I grew up seeing all the time was a giant thermometer on stage as we went to the book of Nehemiah so that we could do a building project. And so I don't want to do that either and take some Old Testament verse out of context so that we could raise money. I didn't want to do that and, uh, either this morning because uh, I don't think that's a biblical approach to challenge our people to be generous. And so the other thing that I think is also also an issue, and this is part of the reason why we've kind of avoided talking about this as much as we should. Um, we, there's in our generation, with our church being primarily 20 and 30 plus, um, we are very hesitant to address this age group with this topic. Um, if our church was full of baby boomers, uh, this would be very easy. Baby boomers are very good at following rules. We could say, you should give, and it just happens. But with our generation, and this is 20s and 30s in that range, early 40s, we struggle with rules, all right? I'm just going to be honest. We struggle with it. 
And part of it is, man, we've seen people abuse it so much. We've seen people uh, hijack this whole thing, giving in the gospel and how that works, that um, we, we don't want to give unless we absolutely trust who we're giving to and what we're giving to. And so we're all about keeping it real. I mean, that's kind of our deal. Like we want to trust and know that it's very genuine on how it's happening. And so, but I, but I will tell you, um, just because that is an issue, it doesn't mean that it's right. All right. Uh, and so we have to challenge the heart. And so giving and generosity is only a sign of our heart. Uh, Jesus said it best. Um, Jesus says this in Matthew 6, uh, 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He also says in the same chapter, you can't serve both God and money. And so these things, giving and our heart, are intrinsically connected. And so if I can't talk about money and I can't talk about generosity, I can't talk about your heart. And so I want to address our hearts this morning, and I want to address how the gospel, when it takes root in our heart, something will be different, that we will show signs of generosity, and we will show signs of incredible, incredible uh, uh, giving heart. And so this series, what I want to tell you in preface, this is not so much about money or generosity as it is about how the gospel needs to be big and beautiful in your life. And if you treasure Christ above all things, then your life will be an open hand and your money won't matter and your generosity won't matter because Christ is above all things. And so what we've done is we've narrowed this down in a four-week uh, series where we'll talk about what is generous giving. That's the first thing. And then what is a, next week will be what is a generous individual? What does a generous individual look like? Then what does a generous community look like? And then what is a generous church look like. So we're going to do this four weeks, and uh, this will launch into a, a campaign that will help us be positioned better to be a generous church. All right, so this isn't going to some building. This isn't going to a Ferrari for the pastor. It's not going to anything like that. Uh, what we're trying to do, and, and this is why we've printed off this uh, fancy thing that you can take on your way out. Uh, it will explain how we want to do this. And so it's going to go to church planting. It's going to go to missions and things that we want to set up. We want to be the type of church that could, uh, in a few years, if we send a church planter out, we want to be able to drop thousands of dollars on this cat that's going to go plant a church so we can help this guy and so he can love where he's going in an effective way. Uh, we want to be the type of church that this city could come to us and say, man, these are needs that we have and how can Integrity Church bless us? We want to be able to have have the, the amount of money to say, this is what we can give you. This is how we can bless the city. We want to be able to church that can be as effective as possible, getting our information out to as many people as possible so many people can hear the gospel. And so this is all about the gospel this morning. I want to show you as this passage is going to challenge us and hopefully launch us to be generous people. And so if you go, go ahead and have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 8 this morning. And I'll just tell you a little bit about what's happening happening here in 2 Corinthians so that you'll understand the context of what Paul's talking about. Paul is a church planter. Uh, Paul is the writer of this book, uh, 2 Corinthians, and Paul plants this church in Corinth. Corinth is a strategic city because it's a port city. Uh, it's a very educated city. It's much like Greenville. It's a lot of people that are going through college or getting their undergrad or getting their master's or getting their PhD. It's very much like Corinth. Uh, one thing that Corinth was known for was the amount 
amount of different types of people. You have different nations and different tongues represented in one city. And so for Paul, this is a strategic city because culture flows from the city. So Paul plants a church there and hope that the gospel would take root. It's a sexually promiscuous church. It's a young, young church. And so Paul plants the gospel there and you see amazing things happen. He's there for 18 months. He stays there and he raises up leaders. There's a guy named Apollos who apparently is a really good speaker. And you see all these things of different things that begin to take place in their lives. And one thing that Paul actually notes them for is how generous they are. They show major signs of immaturity. And that's why he's angry and frustrated with his church. And he actually writes him a letter to correct all these issues. So that's why we have First and Second Corinthians. These people are beginning to doubt whether or not the resurrection is true because the culture is starting to influence the church. People are starting to sleep around. Uh, people are starting to get drunk on communion wine. I mean, how messed up do you have to be to get drunk on communion wine? And so Paul writes letters, First and Second Corinthians, to untangle the moral and theological knots that these people were facing. But he does highlight in that the growth that he seen in their life in spite of some immaturity. And he also talks about how generous they are. And so what he does here in 2 Corinthians 8, he's writing to them, telling this church that he wants to mature in the gospel, wants to grow. He's telling them to be more generous. And how he does it is very interesting. And this is what I want you to see. First, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, <clears throat> says this, we want you to know, brothers, about, this is a key word, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, I want you to see this. He says, in order to talk about generosity, the first thing that he brings up is grace. And what's very interesting is I studied this this week. I saw this one thing that kept showing up. There's no other chapter in all of scripture that mentions grace more than 2 Corinthians 8. I mean, if you look through, if you're thinking like, certainly grace is going to be mentioned a ton in maybe Romans, or if we were to look at Philippians and look at joy in Christ, certainly grace is going to be a, a constant theme throughout um, Philippians, and it is. But if you want to find one chapter that talks about grace more, it's the same chapter that talks about generosity in giving. Isn't that interesting? And the, where we find generosity in giving, we find grace abound more. So the backdrop for how we understand generosity in giving flows from our understanding of what grace is. You get that? You tracking with me? This is backdrop of uh, generosity is grace. Now, if you look at this passage, you'll see seven times grace is mentioned in this chapter. Not every single time it's mentioned grace. Sometimes it says favor. But if you even look at the next chapter, chapter nine, we'll talk about chapter nine next week. You see grace showing up twice. So in two chapters, it's mentioned nine different times. Do you think Paul is trying to reiterate a point here that grace is what should drive us to be generous people? And what he talks about is not only this isn't just remembering past grace, but it's seeing the future grace that God offers us through his son, Jesus. And so I want you to see this because if you don't see grace as the backdrop for this passage, what you'll find is 
Paul really saying something that's pretty mean, all right? And in this verse one, he says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What Paul is doing is he's talking to a church in Corinth, telling them how great a church is doing in Macedonia and how generous they are. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. What if the way that I motivated Integrity Church to be more generous and to give more was to go and show all the statistics of every church in Greenville and say, here's their average weekly attendance, and here's what they're giving. Here's what, here, this is another church. This is their average weekly. Here's what they're giving. And that was the way that I was trying to motivate you to give. Now, that would be jacked up, would it not? I mean, I'm, I'm using guilt tactics to, to really encourage you to give. I mean, we got to blow these churches out, right? This is a mess, man. We're, not, we're way behind, right? Like, like it's some type of a game. And so Paul does the same thing. He says, look, this church in Macedonia is very generous. I want you to look at this church. But how does he get away with it? What's the backdrop? It's grace. So if grace is not the backdrop, then we can't, we look at this passage and think this is just guilt driven. This is just, man, you're just trying to scare me into giving and being generous. It's not what he's doing here. It's not what he's doing. He's giving you grace as a backdrop because what he's doing when he points to Macedonia, he's not bragging about the Macedonian church. He's bragging about the work that Jesus is doing in the life of the Macedonians. Are you tracking with that? You see the difference there? He's not saying, oh, praise the Macedonians for what they're doing. Absolutely not. He's saying, look at the grace that Jesus is doing in the Macedonians and look how they're responding through generosity. So there's a major backdrop here that I want you to see that it's all about what Christ is doing in our lives that call us to be generous people. Verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, is that a weird verse or what? He says two different things about what this group in Macedonia is going through and what they're fighting and what they're wrestling with. What does he say? He says, They're in a severe test of affliction. That's one thing. The second thing he talks about is they're in extreme poverty. You see that? Severe test of affliction, extreme poverty. What is sandwiched between these two? Two things, abundance of joy and wealth of generosity. So while this church is going through extreme poverty and in a a severe test of affliction, we're seeing joy abound and we're seeing a wealth of generosity spring up in the middle. Do you see how far we are from that? Like I look at that and I, I tremble at those verses because man, I think about how I am not suffering and my joy doesn't abound. I think about I am not in poverty and my generosity doesn't overflow. But in poverty and in affliction, Joy abounded and a wealth of generosity overflowed. And the difference is they understood grace differently than I do. And I look at this passage and I think as they got 
grace, as they understood grace, what happened? They became more poor and they became more persecuted. And that is very different than what I heard growing up about what a Christian was. I heard, become a Christian and everything's going to work out really great for you after that. And then I would read the Bible and I would say, Paul was doing really well until he became a Christian. And then he got beat up a lot, right? Paul was doing really great. And then he got stoned. And then he lost all of his friends and they almost killed him. I mean, even the disciples were skeptical of Paul. And I'm thinking to myself, that can't be right. And then I read passages like this and I'm like, it doesn't seem like when grace came, everything was flowery after that. Actually, it got worse. So how do we put that into what we know in America as the prosperity gospel that says God's ultimate goal for your life is to be healthy and wealthy. Look, don't settle for a civic. You can be rolling in a Bentley because look, you're a child of the king. Child of the king deserves a Bentley. But the problem with that is 2 Corinthians 8. It says that when they got grace, poverty happened and affliction happened. That's the opposite of that message. And so, man, this is, by the way, when you hear anyone add to the gospel, like put something before the gospel or put something after the gospel, it's not the gospel. So like prosperity gospel, not the gospel, all right? It's not the gospel. I can't think of anything that infuriates me more than the prosperity gospel that God's ultimate plan for you is to get things, get trinkets. The gospel is that once you know Christ, he is your treasure and you don't care about trinkets because he, everything else pales in comparison because he's great and he's wonderful because he's a savior. And so that in your affliction and in your poverty, he's enough. And that's the gospel. And so this is what you're seeing that is coming out of these people. If you see severe, you see abundant, you see extreme poverty. And so I am greatly humbled by this because I, I struggle with grasping the concept of what this actually looks like. I mean, in America, it's hard for us to identify with poverty and suffering the way that they suffered. And we don't see it like the Christians suffer in Sudan or in China in the underground church. We don't see it that way. And I think about suffering and how minuscule the things that I suffer through compared to actually real persecution. And I think that's why I struggle with generosity. I was thinking just last week, I was on a plane to Dallas, Texas uh, with our worship leader. We went to a worship leader conference, very gospel-centered, incredible conference. Um, and uh, we were flying, and I, I, if you've ever driven out of the flown out of the Greenville airport. Um, those planes have propellers, all right? I'm just saying, they have propellers on them, and uh, it's scary, and especially if you have a wing seat, like they gave us the wing seat, and it's like I felt like I was in a 1944 World War II movie or something, like we were going to get guns, and because it sounds, it's, it's got a real vintage sound, um, <clears throat> so, which brought up Band of Brothers with us, but anyway, um, and so we are flying, and I'm thinking, I've got to get out of this so I can get into the better plane. And I'm thinking, then they have Wi-Fi. You know, I'm thinking that in my mind. Like, as I'm on the Greenville plane to uh, Charlotte, we get on the Charlotte, and we get on the better plane that has Wi-Fi. 
and I'm sitting in a comfortable chair, you know, and I uh, got space, and I bring up my computer, and I'm trying to pull up Wi-Fi, and I get angry that Wi-Fi doesn't happen. And I, and I took a step back for a moment. Why isn't it good enough that I am over a thousand feet in the air and I will be in Dallas in less than three hours. And I have to check my fantasy football um, you know, roster and make sure no one's injured before the weekend. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do that. And I'm, for a moment, I am angry that the internet doesn't work while I'm flying underneath outer space and thousands, thousands of feet above the ground. And that is not enough for me. And then like we get out and like this Guy runs to the front. I'm thinking, no, he needs to wait. Like, you know, I'm thinking, and we begin to think so crazy because our suffering begins to be like little things because there's little trinkets that we're always given and all the little things that we have access to. We don't get suffering because of stuff like that. Look, I'm just being honest. If you're judging me right now, I'm, too bad. I'm just being honest, all right? That's, that's where I'm located. Um, but you're, if you're saying you're not like that, you're lying. Um, and so... What, what we see here is something very different. We're seeing grace abound in such a way there's an overflow that in the midst of suffering and poverty, you see a wealth of generosity. And one of the things I'll, I'll point out, because I think what people typically do when we talk about this is say, look, I don't have enough to be generous. I don't have enough to give generously. I don't have enough to give regularly. I don't have enough to give generously. I don't have enough to give cheerfully or any of those things. If I had more money, I would give more. What I would like to show you is that while these people were in poverty, they gave more. And, and what you'll see, if I were to show you stats after stats, what I will prove to you is the more rich we get, the less generous we get. If you want to see generosity, most of the time generosity happens when there's not an extreme amount of rich people. And I think that's because we are idol factories at birth. We fight and war against God. And when we get money, it becomes something that we find our comfort and hope in. And we begin to love that more than Jesus. And instead of treasuring him above all things, we treasure it above all things. And the more and more we want it, the, more, the less and less we think about our need for Jesus. <clears throat> so this church here, that's in extreme poverty, Jesus is enough because they don't have anything to compare him to because he's greater than all those things. So why not be generous? But with us, man, we get so much stuff and we, we, we forget Jesus and how great and wonderful grace is. And so we see the heart behind their giving. It's grace that overflows in their heart. And let's look at how they gave. Look into this in verse 3. Verse 3, it says this, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. This aligns with 2 Corinthians 9, 7, which we'll talk about next week. It says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful what? Giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And it's not under compulsion. These are, this is grace is giving them freedom to give. Grace releases them to give however they can give. And we'll, next week we'll hit tithing and what that means, but we don't, we don't 
say that you're obligated to a 10% tithe. We're saying this, if the gospel takes root in your heart, you will respond through generosity. And if you're not responding through generosity, maybe the gospel hasn't taken root in your heart. That's what we're saying. We're saying there's a sense here where these people are giving in such a way that there's a discomfort around their giving. They're, they're giving in a way that says, man, this is going to be tight. But they're not stupid. They're not saying, well, I can't pay that bill, but I'm going to give, and so I won't pay that bill. No, they're not doing that. But there is a sense of, man, this is going to be tough. But I'm responding to the gospel, so I'm just going to display the generosity through giving. So you give because of the grace that he offers. Look at verse 4. It says, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us, verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Look at, look at what they're doing. They are begging Paul, can we give more? And I could sense Paul is looking at this church in Macedonia and saying, what are you doing? Why on earth would you be this generous while you're in poverty? And they're saying, we want to give more. We want to give more. I have never been in that place, all right? I want to be, because I love what's happening here, but I, I, I love the heart. Look in verse 5. It says this, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus, that as he has started, that he should complete among you the act of grace. But... As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, in our love for you, see that you also excel in the act of grace. He's saying this is a commitment that is made to the Lord first, and then from that, you want to spread that generosity to others. And then he says, look, I know, Corinth, that you are a cool, hip, trendy church, all of you educated, all of you smart people, but look, excel in those things. Great. But here's what I want you to excel in more. is love and grace. Because he knew that grace, if we understand grace, it will flow into generosity. Verse 8. But I, I say this, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. So it's not a command, and we'll talk about that next week, but he says that your love is genuine. Here's one of the things I love about being a dad. Um, I've got two boys. My youngest son just turned a year old yesterday. Cannot believe that was a year ago. Um, And my oldest son is five years old. And one of the things, I have two boys, and they're um, very passionate guys already. I can already see how different they are. And uh, it's, it's a very neat thing to be a dad and see that. But one of the things that you are as a dad, you, you are oft, often a rule giver. Like, okay, guys, you know, don't jump out of the bathtub head first, right? If we go to the hotel, you can't jump from one you know, bed to the next. And you're thinking, I know that would be fun, but I have to tell them so they don't break their le- you know, head. And, like, so you're, and then you know, don't eat gummy bears right, after, right before you go to bed. You, know, you can't drink that drink or you're going to you know, have a caffeine high and you're going to be caffeine hungover in the morning. And you know, all these kind of rules that we have to always give and don't run out in front of you. You're always saying, like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And, and it doesn't bring me that much joy. When I give a rule and he actually does it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't excite me that much. 
Here's what really excites me. When my five-year-old does things for me out of a love for his dad, and my five-year-old Finn, he has a very soft, kind heart. Um, just yesterday, we went to go, we had our uh, one-year-old Gideon, his birthday was yesterday, and so we went out to get a few last-minute things for the birthday party, and my son, five-year-old, he says, um, Dad, I really want to get a card for Gideon for his birthday, and I want to have my own card that for my brother. I said, okay, buddy. You know, we go and he gets one and he writes his name, you know, gigantic I with a huge line, you know, Gideon. And, um, and we loved that. It was awesome that he was able to do that. And then um, one of the things he did the other day, it just, it, it, it really excited me because um, I, I get tired. Um, pastors have hard days. I don't know if you know that, but um, I had a hard day. Um, and what my day typically looks like when I get off, I I put on my basketball shorts and comfortable clothes, and I play Legos with Finn. And uh, he loves doing that. And it's, you know, if you're tired, that can be be challenging. You're sitting there on your knees, and you're building stuff and tearing it back down and starting over. And um, one of the things he knew was he saw me come in after I had a couple hard days. He says, hey, Dad. I said, what, buddy? He goes, "Um, I know you've had a hard day. And I don't know how he knew I had a hard day. But he says, I know you've had a hard day. Um, do you want to watch American's Funniest Home Videos with me instead of playing Legos? I was like, yeah, I do want to do that with you. And he said, OK. And you know what he did? He went in our living room, and he sat up. He got my bed, my pillows, because I'm really weird about my pillows, um, for my bed, and put them in the living room on the couch. And then he set up a blanket, and he folded it where there was a crease, and he got a Coke, and he brought it into the living room. And I'm watching him, like, straightening all this out. He turns on Netflix. He knew how to get to America's Funniest Home Videos. On, I have no idea how he knows how to do that. i got to watch what he's watching now. But um, he lined it all up perfectly and beautifully. And I'm, I'm sitting there crying and closing my eyes and walking through. And, and he goes, I have everything ready for us. To, to I love doing this, Dad. And I was just like, I love it, too. You know, I was crying. But here's, here's what made me, here's what I love about what just happened, all right? I didn't tell him to do that. He did that out of an overflow of his heart for his love for his dad. You see the difference? And so what the gospel does, when it takes a root in our heart, we're not thinking, man, I want to just, I, I want to obey the rules. It's all about obeying the rules. The gospel's not about obeying the rules. The gospel is about responding to a kind and loving father. That's what it is. And so how great it would be, man, we just overflow. I mean, I could never have written that down for him to make him do that. He just did it out of an overflow of his love for his dad, knowing his dad and knowing how I would respond to that. What a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel that, man, our generosity should overflow in this way. And so Paul, he points this church in Corinth, telling them about the work that is do- being done in Macedonia. And he shows them in just a few verses what this picture is. He says to this, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What Paul does is he tells them of the work of Jesus to motivate them to be generous. He doesn't say, here's all the rules. No, he says, this is what 
your father has done. And he talks about Jesus being rich. Well, we know that Jesus was a homeless man. He said that foxes have holes and birds have nests and a place to lay my head, I have none. So we know that Jesus wasn't speaking of his financial uh, stability. He's talking really, Paul's talking about Jesus's position at the right hand of the Father. God, Jesus's pre-existence. Jesus is the only man to live before he was born. And we see this in John 1. It says in John 1, 1 through 3, we'll have it up on the screen. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him uh, was not anything made that was made. So it's not talking about the Bible because it says him. We're talking about a person. We see in John 1, 18, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This passage in John is about Christ. Christ lived before he was born. It says he was in the beginning with God. It says he was God in the beginning. This is his wealth that he is the creator of all things. Colossians 1, it talks about all things hold together by him. Christ, Jesus, um, lived at the right hand of the Father. And what Philippians says uh, is this very same thing that Paul says, that he became poor. Philippians 2, 6, we'll have that up as well. It says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to grasp. In other words, his existence with God at the right hand of God, the creator of all things, is willing to, to, to let go of that to obey the Father. It, what, he did not uh, consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, something that he would never uh, let go of. He's willing to release some of his divine rights to come to earth and to live as a human. And so Philippians, it says, uh, 2 verse 7, it says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus Christ was at the right hand of the Father. He did not consider equality with God, a thing to be grasped, something that he would not let go of. He was willing to release himself of his divine rights to be, as Philippians says, a servant. He didn't wear servant clothes. He became a slave to sinners, you and me, who didn't have that position. But he became a slave to sinners, you and me, and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so what Paul says, he became poverty so that we would be rich. He's saying, Jesus became sin so that we would know our Father. And this is his motivation for how he wants them to be generous. And then he gives them one last thing, verse 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment. These benefit, this benefits you who a year ago started not only to this work, but also to desire to do it. So what Paul is doing is he's telling this church in Corinth about this church in Macedonia and saying, look, I want you to do what they're doing. I want you to overflow in your understanding of the gospel in such a way and understanding of grace in such a way that it overflows in your life. And I want you to, to practice these things that you would see grace this way. And so this morning, that's my only invitation this morning. 
is that what we see that happens in Macedonia and what Paul wants to happen in Corinth is what God, I believe, wants for Integrity Church in Greenville. I can't think of one greater apologetic for our city than for the people in Greenville to see the generosity of people from Integrity that we would give our lives in such a way that is mind-boggling to our culture. And say, why would you want to sacrifice this for us? It's because we treasure Christ above all things. And that's my hope this morning. So my question is, do you treasure Christ above all things? Do you see yourself when you look at this passage and you see where the Macedonians are crying for Paul to give more and more? Have you ever seen that in your own life? Have you ever responded to show generosity in such a way that it wasn't about guilt, but it was just an overflow of love for Christ? Have you given it in a way that it makes you feel uncomfortable because you're saying this is going to be tight? But if we treasure Christ above all things, Honestly, nothing else matters. So this morning, my hope is that you would just look at the gospel, that Christ became poor so that we would become rich, but rich in him because he is our one and only treasure. Let's pray.